when you're asking for help, my Savior. That's a great, great privilege. He saved us uh, from just desserts, eternal damnation. And in life, he helps us in our various trials and circumstances. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 14. Uh, we're continuing our preaching through this uh, wonderful uh, gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, we began in verse 22 uh, this morning. Familiar story to Bible readers, uh, Christians. Uh, we've all read it more than once or twice, three times um, at least, more but we trust that God will give us greater insight this morning as we look at these verses. Let me read them in your hearing. Verse 22, we begin there. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when he, it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves for the land was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And they got into the boat. The wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Amen. The master of the sea. Uh, this passage reveals uh, the otherness of Jesus Christ. Yes, he was a man, fully man, as the Bible clearly teaches, but he wasn't just a man. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the apostle writes, We saw his glory the glory of the only begotten from the Father. Only begotten, those two words render a word from the original language that means unique, one of a kind. There's no one like him. There was no one then like him, nor shall there ever be one like him. Glory denotes that Jesus' divine nature, which was expressed by him during his ministry. That nature, or essence, he shares equally with God the Father. Whatever attributes God the Father has, Jesus has. During their time with Jesus, the disciples, also known as apostles, saw firsthand his divine glory. They saw up close and personal his attributes, his essence displayed in his actions. They saw, in a word, his glory. The miracle of Jesus' walking on the water was one of those displays of glory. The feeding, as you recall, of the 5,000 plus was an occasion, too, when his divine glory, divine nature, 
as creator was displayed. But that astounding miracle was a public revelation of who he is. The miracle recorded here in our text that I just read in your hearing was for the disciples only. It was a private display of Jesus' glory. It was for their training. They needed to know more fully who he is. They need to be convinced of who he is. They needed their faith strengthened. So it was a disclosure to them of his divine nature. And it worked. Because as I read a moment ago at the last verse of this passage, it says, you are certainly God's son. They got it. What they experienced, they realized, yes, this is just not any other man. This event then educated them in Christology. You know, the doctrine of Christ uh, it came from Christ himself. What we need to see here as this unfolds, as we see it unfold, this narrative, we see, first of all, the heading, prep, the preparation for the disclosure, verse 22. You'll notice in verse 22, the first word in our English translation is an adverb, and it is the adverb immediately. It conveys urgency. The sense of urgency was created by the crowd who benefited from the miraculous feeding. You recall that they wanted to make Jesus king. John chapter 6 verse 15 tells us this. They saw this powerful display of creative power and they recognized in him one, oh, he could be a king. And so they were pressing for that very thing. What they wanted was the crown without the cross. They wanted to make him king, but they didn't want him to go to the cross. They had no issue, uh, no desire to see that. In fact, this was Satan's ploy. His temptation of Jesus, as you recall, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, he wanted Jesus to avoid the cross. For the devil knew that Christ's death on the cross would mean the devil's conquest. It would mean his defeat. Satan, you recall, was in the Garden of Eden when God pronounced that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Satan knew from the very beginning that there was one coming, the seed of the woman, who would have ultimate victory over him. And he understood that he needed to stop this one who was coming, the seed of the woman, from going to the cross, which would spell his eternal doom. Peter, later than the episode here, would be rebuked by our Lord for trying to turn him away from the cross. You recall these Tough words from Jesus. He said to Peter, Satan, get behind me. You uh, desire the things of man, not of God. The popular sentiment expressed in John 6, 15, uh, on this occasion of the feeding of the 5,000 was a human agenda born out of um, sheer material desires. A king Perhaps, I don't know this for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised. Even Satan was perhaps behind the scenes, offering the crown without the cross, tempting Jesus to go that way. Well, was popular. Let me, let, me, let me say this. Jesus had to get his guys away from that. 
because they were there and no doubt that they would think wow this is great make him king and guess what if he's king we're going to be there right with him and Jesus said no 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 you guys got to get away the timing of the earthly rule of Jesus Christ is after his suffering or was after his suffering Jesus averse in John chapter 6 verse 38 that he came to earth to do the will of the Father. The cross preeminently was the will of the Father. You'll notice something here in this passage in verse 22 that in the urgency of the moment Jesus tells his men get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. That's the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus sent the crowd away. 20 to 25,000 people Jesus sent away all by himself. That was an expression, I believe, of his divine authority. In verse 23, disciples are on their way and Jesus then departs and he sends the crowd away and he went up to on the mountain by himself to pray. He wanted to spend time in communion with his father. What do you think he was praying about? I think this is what he was praying about. He prayed for his disciples. He knew what they were about to experience on the Sea of Galilee. He knew the trouble that was coming to them. And they were to go to the other side the western shore but you'll notice something here in verse 24 the boat was already a long distance from land they're a long way from their destination according to John chapter 6 verse 19 they were about 3 or 4 miles away in a normal trip across the sea, the boat would not have traveled more than a mile or two from shore at any point but as I just stated, they were 3 or 4 miles away the storm had caused that. It had carried them into the middle of the sea. And that storm was a strong one, John tells us. And that storm battered um, there in their little boat by the waves they were. For the wind was against them. The wind was contrary. And you need to know something about the storms. They would suddenly appear on the Sea of Galilee. They come swooping down from the mountains and the slope, and they would come and it create this turbulence. And it could be a very dangerous voyage, even on a, for a routine trip across the sea. There would be those periodic times of difficulty and danger. Wind was contrary to them, and they couldn't make any headway. In Mark's account of this incident says that they were straining at the oars what that means is they were working feverishly to survive and as John six seventeen reports Jesus had not come they're out there in the middle of the sea being battered by the waves and the wind was contrary and Jesus hadn't come oh this was preparatory for the disclosure to them of who Jesus is. Let's look then, the proof of his divinity, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, let us stop there for a moment, explain this. 
The Romans divided the night into four watches. The first was from six to nine. The second watch was from nine to midnight. The third watch was from midnight to three in the morning. And the disciples who had left a fourth watch was from three to six. Disciples who had left before nine o'clock the previous evening were still on the lake in the hours just before dawn. In all that time, they had been able to only row a few miles. All that time, they were trying to get to where Jesus had commanded them to go, but they could not. And they were out there alone in that difficult situation, and Jesus had not come to them. But we see he came in the fourth watch of the night. So between three and six, Jesus came walking on the water. Winds and the waves could not stop him. The sea was solid beneath his feet. I'm assuming they solidified at the word of his command or his will being exercised. We don't really know, but I do know this. He could walk on it, the surface of the water like we'd walk on the floor. Gravity could not sink him as he walked on the water. It was fascinating here. There are some people who are skeptics. They deny the supernaturalism of the Bible, and they try to claim, no, 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 no. He wasn't really walking on the water. What the disciples saw was Jesus walking along the shore. Yeah, sure. These guys are rowing feverishly. It is dark, and they are afraid, and they go, oh, there's Jesus over there by the shore. No, that's not it. This is an eyewitness account, by the way, of Matthew. He knew what he saw well as Mark and John. Jesus was obviously in control of the sea. He is the master of the sea. Master of the created order. It did his will. And you'll notice then he came to them walking on the sea. Some spiritual facts we need to remember in experiencing difficulties. Number one, our troubles do not necessarily mean we are being disobedient to Christ. The disciples' trouble was incurred because they were obedient to Christ. They had been told by him to go to the other side, and that's why, as they were trying to obey him, they had the difficulty. Second, when we are enduring hardship, we need to recall the words from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. He knows where you are. He knows what you're experiencing. He sees your difficulty. You never have to wonder, Lord, do you see? Do you not? Yes, he sees and he knows. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, Israel had a problem like that. They asserted that, quote, My way is hidden from the Lord, and justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Those were their words. They were wrong. Their assertion was wrong. Nothing is ever hidden about us from him. 
Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says this, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees everything. You can't hide. You know, sometimes people tease me. I suppose it's teasing. You know, they might be saying something jokingly in our church and say, Oops, there's the pastor. Uh, let me tell you all something. If God sees you, right? Keep that in mind. If you're doing some stuff, you're trying to keep it from me, ah, uh, that doesn't matter. God sees you. Keep that in mind. He knows where you go. He knows what you're doing. He sees it all. You can't fool him. You fool Pastor Wilson. Sometimes. <laughs> but the Lord knows. Keep that in mind, people. Keep that in mind. Nothing is hidden from his sight. That's why you want to be genuine with him in private. You want to walk in private the way you appear to walk in public. Can I get an amen? amen. Yes. These guys saw him. They saw him. Well, he met their need. He came to them. Verse 26, let's look there. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They saw him, notice, they saw him walking on the sea. They saw the miracle. They witnessed it. Although they um, misidentified him, they called him a ghost at first. He cried out in fear. Uh, the Greek term for ghost is phantasma, uh, from which our words phantom and phantasm are derived. The word phantasma, in fact, refers to an apparition or a popular thought in the first century. Um, is superstitious. Superstitious thought purported that spirits or specters of the night brought disaster. <laughs> so they think, oh boy, we're finished. It's a ghost. We're doomed. We're going to drown. You might say, how superstitious to believe something like that. But may I remind us that people of our day are superstitious too. Woe be it unto us if a black cat crosses our path. <laughs> people have a black cat crosses your path? Uh, something? Are you serious? You know what that accomplished? It made noise. People knock it on wood. I said, really? Do you think a black cat who, who doesn't write books and can't think philosophically, who crosses your path and somehow that way uh, something's going to happen to you, knock it on wood, are we just celebrated, uh, uh, had um, Friday the 13th. And I didn't even think about it until I saw something on the news or something somewhere Friday the 13th. And I said, oh, there they go superstition. Let me tell you all, you know this if you're an instructed Christian, you know this firmly. Sovereign God controls life. Not the random acts of a cat, not the knocking on wood, not the day on a calendar. God is in control of life. We believe in a sovereign God. We don't have superstitions. The, the disciples. Superstitious. They cried out in fear. 
But notice in verse 27, immediately Jesus sought to disabuse them of their fears and told them, notice the words, take courage. I need to tell you what those words mean, take courage. It means here, um, be cheerful, to be confident. Why should Jesus tell them, take courage, be cheerful, to be confident? It's clear. Notice what he says after the comma. It is I. Uh, you need to know what it is I saying. Literally, it is I am. Jesus said, be cheerful, be courageous. I am. We might think that's horrible grammar. But the Greek text is not so. I am reflects the self-revelation of God found in Exodus 3, verse 14. I am who I am, the eternal self-existent one. That's what Jesus is saying. Since I am is with you, stop being afraid. Two ways Jesus demonstrated his divinity, proved it here in this portion of the text. Number one, he walked on the sea. Number two, he identified himself as the eternal God. Proof of his divinity. So we've seen the preparation for his disclosure. And we've just seen the proof of his divinity. Now we see the participation in his miracle. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the waters. The words in our English translation uh, are potentially misleading to readers. Peter's words were here, do not express doubt. He knew it was the Lord. The original really can be translated this way, since it is you. Command me to come to you. Peter was always wanting to be in the Lord's presence. He wanted to be near Jesus. He says, command me. In other words, enable me to do the same thing you are doing. He asked him, command me. He wasn't presumptuous. He wouldn't get out of the boat unless Jesus said, come. And when Jesus says, come, when he commands, he also fulfills what's necessary to obey the command. And he said to Peter, verse 29, um, come Peter obeyed trusting Jesus' power to enable him to walk on water Jesus could of his own power walk on water Peter could only walk on water if Jesus empowered him a great distinction he trusted Jesus to get out of the boat in the midst of the storm think about this the storm is still raging the wind is still strong. The boat is still being buffeted by the winds. And the waves are rising high, battering the boat. And guess what he does? He gets out. He takes a step into the water, and the water is solidified under his feet. He is walking on water because Jesus said, come. And Peter, Peter was a fisherman. He made his living on the water, fishing. But he had never walked on it. This was his inaugural experience in walking on the water. He was walking by faith. Literally walking by faith. Step by step. He was trusting Jesus while he also took literal steps of faith walking toward him. 
you notice something? Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. As John MacArthur writes, quote, as Peter's faltering faith was representative of all the disciples and exemplified the reason the miracle was necessary to strengthen their faith. His faith needed to be strengthened. And Peter, sinking, he called on the Lord. The right thing to do. Lord, save me. And the Lord in his faithfulness risked. And this was a rescue from drowning. He wasn't going to drown because the Lord was going to allow that. But this is also a picture of salvation. There are people who are drowning and in their sin. They're perishing and they can call on the Lord too. Save me. So Peter called on the Lord in verse 31. Immediately, there's that word again. Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Let's unpack this for a moment. Doubt is literally to be divided in two. Peter should have been single-mindedly focused on the power of Jesus, not looking at the wind. The circumstances weighed more heavily on his mind than the power of Jesus. And that happens even to us. When Jesus said, why did you doubt? He was saying, in effect, there was no justification for your doubt, Peter. The power that enabled you to get out of the boat and begin to walk on the water would enable you to continue until you got to me. No reason to doubt. Followers of Jesus have, at times, a combination of faith and doubt. Isn't that not true? So was Peter. Peter had to learn and trust Jesus no matter the circumstance. No matter what you see around you, no matter what's going on, you just trust my word and follow me and do what I command. It'll be okay. Just trust me. And he and the disciples need to learn that. seeing the preparation for his disclosure the proof of his divinity participation in his miracle and all the truth that was taught there now we're going to see their proclamation of his deity verse 32 when they got into the boat the wind stopped that is when Peter and Jesus got in the boat the wind stopped. This is another miracle. Jesus stopped the wind. The test was over. He could have stopped it earlier, you know. <laughs> he was in control, but he stopped it when they got in the boat. This underscored Jesus' absolute control over this element of nature, his sovereign mastery and showed his control over the disciples' circumstance. He is in control of our circumstance as well. In John chapter 6, verse 21, there's another thing. I, I, go with me there. I want to show you something. John chapter, parallel account. John chapter 6, verse 21. John chapter 6, verse 21. 
so they're in the boat. The wind stopped. Are y'all at verse 21? Look what it says. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And what is that? Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Whoa, I'd like to travel like that, wouldn't you? This, brothers and sisters, is a miracle. Miraculously, the boat traveled the remaining distance to the western shore. Oh, I'd have loved to have been in the boat on that occasion. Supernatural travel. That, my friends, is a miracle. Jesus walked on the water. Peter did because Jesus commanded him. The wind stopped and the boat was instantly on the western shore. The power of Christ. Master of the of the sea. And um, another occasion in the Gospels, Matthew, in this Gospel, Matthew chapter 8. Remember when Jesus stilled the storm? Remember the guys were in the boat? This is another situation with water. You remember that? Do, do y'all remember? Yes, you do. Y'all just not saying anything. Remember, uh, it was a big storm, and, um, and Jesus was napping. Verse 24, right at the bottom verse, Jesus himself was asleep. And they came in and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. What kind of man is this? Well, they got an answer. It came clearer to them in our text. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. Here's their answer to that question. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. That's the kind of man he is. He is the eternal son of God. He is the second person in the Godhead. He is the God of the universe, and they recognized as they worshipped him, adored him, that God was in their boat. It's an amazing reality. And we know that their Christology was correct because Jesus did not rebuke them for worshiping him. They had it right. This is the Son of God, our God's Son, as our text says. He is the one who shares all of his attributes. And in fact, their proclamation aligned with that of God the Father himself. For it was God the Father who said about Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The master of the sea is none other than the master of everything. 
son of the living God. That's who we serve. That's who we worship. That's who we love. And he is the one who saved us. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this record of your, the power of your son. Power of the second person of the Trinity who, in human flesh who did that which only God could do. Showing us who our Savior is. Another glimpse of his glory. May we uh, rehearse these truths in our minds and may it strengthen our own faith as we look to him and pray in his name knowing Lord whatever it is you want us to do consistent with your will and word you can do it you can meet us and meet our need in any circumstance we're in help us to continue to glorify you and rejoice in who you are pray for anyone in this room this morning who's without the Savior distant from him lost perishing Open their hearts, bring them to yourself. Save them for Christ's sake and for their eternal well-being and for your glory. We pray for anyone in this room this morning who's a Christian but unchurched, need a place where they can identify with local believers and serve our glorious Christ. Add them here. We pray these things now in the name of the risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.